there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that listeners may find offensive or distressing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hey there. What's a little girl like you doing wandering around by yourself? I was listening to music, but then I got lost. Do you need some help finding your way? Maybe. Don't worry. I'm a member of the Children's Protective Society. What's that? It means that I protect little girls like you from bad adults who want to hurt them. Like the police? I guess you could say that. Then, do you know how to get to 2325 Troy Street? Sure. Come on. I'll walk with you. Thank you, mister. Want me to tell you a story? What kind of story? A story about brave little girls just like you. Seven princesses who led the greatest rebellion of all time. Oh, what were their names? Let's go somewhere quieter. I'll tell you all about them. But I need to go to my auntie's. How about this? I'll tell you my story and then I'll take you straight to your auntie's. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on Elsie Parabek's murder. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. In 1906, Elsie Parobeck was born in Chicago, Illinois, to Frank and Carolina Parobeck, immigrants from Bohemia, or what is now known as the Czech Republic. She grew up to be a strikingly pretty child with blue eyes and long blonde hair. Strangers often commented on her appearance. Is that your little girl? Yes. Say hello, Elsie. Hello. Hello, beautiful. Oh, look at those dimples you've got there. And those blue eyes. Say thank you. Thank you. Oh, she's going to be a heartbreaker someday. Hopefully that's a long way off. Come along, Elsie. Goodbye, dear. Bye. Elsie was a sociable and outgoing child with many close friends in the neighborhood. One of these friends was her cousin, nine-year-old Josie Trumpeta. On April 8, 1911, Elsie left home and walked around the block to her cousin's house to play. Where are you going, Elsie? Auntie's. A short distance from her aunt's front door, Elsie found Josie and several other children listening to a hurdy-gurdy player. Elsie joined the other children to listen to the organ music, and they traipsed along after the street musician. 
Eventually, the children grew bored and they left, all except for Elsie, who stayed to listen to the organ grinder. It was the last time she was seen alive. That evening, Elsie's father, Frank, returned home from work and was alarmed to discover that Elsie was missing. He went to the police station to file a report. You have to do something. My daughter's missing. Calm down, sir. She's probably spending the night at a friend's house. She'll come home tomorrow morning. But Elsie wasn't at a friend's house, and she never came home. On April 9th, the police began to search for the missing girl. At first, investigators suspected that Elsie had been kidnapped by gypsies. Why gypsies? A combination of factors. Romani and Irish travelers had been dealing with racism and prejudice for centuries. They were frequently accused of theft. And many parents, like Carolina and Frank Parabek, were convinced that the Romani were out to steal their fair-haired children. Any other reasons that the police suspected the Romani? A young boy named Joseph Jaroski claimed he saw two gypsy women carting a crying child away in a wagon. But he couldn't see the crying child, only the two women. That doesn't sound like the most compelling evidence. The third reason police thought Elsie might have been taken by gypsies was because of the kidnapping of Chicago native Lillian Wolfe. In 1907, eight-year-old Lillian was kidnapped by transients. She was spotted by a farmer a week later in Moments and rescued by the local sheriff. In the papers, reporters referred to Lillian's kidnappers as gypsies, helping to fuel the public's paranoia about Romani. After Elsie Parobek was officially confirmed missing, police searched all the gypsy encampments in Chicago, but they found no sign of Elsie. Tips poured in from all over the country, with local residents claiming they'd seen a blonde girl matching Elsie's description in a gypsy camp. The search soon spanned multiple states, but none of the leads panned out. All of the fair-haired children belonged to their Romani parents. Detectives began to suspect that Elsie had fallen into the local canal and drowned. Yet despite dragging the canal multiple times, they couldn't find her. They also wondered if she had been murdered, her corpse buried in an abandoned building or a cellar. But this turned out to be a fruitless search as well. Mrs. Ella Young, the Chicago superintendent, asked the city's school children to look for Elsie during their spring break. Many children volunteered to search for her. Elsie! Elsie! Are you there? Elsie! Unfortunately, Elsie's friends weren't able to locate her. The young girl wouldn't be found until May 9th, a month after her disappearance. George Scully, an electrical engineer, was working at the Lockport power plant when he spotted a body floating in the canal. Scully and the other workers used a boat to retrieve the corpse. Oh, God! It's a little kid! Help me get her out of the water. The undertaker who examined the young girl suspected that this was Elsie Parobek. Investigators brought the parents in to identify the body. Is it Elsie? <laughs> oh, my little girl. What did those gypsies do to you? What did they do? Several coroners examined Elsie, disagreeing on the results of their examinations. Although all agreed that she had been murdered, two of the doctors believed that Elsie had been sexually abused before being strangled, while the other two believed she had been suffocated to death. Regardless, detectives now knew that Elsie had been killed, and they began the search for her murderer. 
The reward for Elsie's safe return was raised to $1,000 for information leading to the capture of her killer. Elsie's parents, Frank and Carolina, still believe that their daughter was killed by gypsies. Police suspected that perhaps the gypsies who kidnapped Elsie became fearful that they were going to get caught, and so maybe they took drastic measures. The gypsies could have killed Elsie to get rid of the evidence. Police are searching all the camps. They're going to find her. Shh, calm down. I won't let that happen. I don't want to go to prison. We won't go to prison. Not if we make sure there's no little girl to find. You can't. You can't be suggesting. We have no choice. We have to get rid of her. This scenario just doesn't seem likely to me. Why is that? There's no real evidence to support the gypsy kidnapping theory, beyond simple prejudice and rumor-mongering about the Romani. What about the young neighbor, Joseph Jaroski, who thought he saw Elsie crying as she was carried away in a gypsy wagon? Well, that's circumstantial at best. Not to mention the fact that Joseph never even saw the crying child. We don't even know if the child was a boy or a girl, let alone whether this was Elsie. The most likely scenario is that this was the child of one of the women in the wagon. Yeah, you're probably right. So if gypsies didn't kidnap and murder Elsie, then who did? One suspect is the writer of the mysterious letters that Frank Parobek began receiving several days after Elsie's disappearance. Thank you for coming. I know how trying this must be for you. I'll be here anytime you need me. I appreciate it. So how can I help? You said something about my English? You can read English, right? Not just speak it? You need me to read something? I've been getting these letters in the mail, but I can't read the English. Can you translate them for me? Of course. You don't want me to translate these. Why? What does it say? The writer says that you didn't take good care of Elsie. He says you abused and neglected her. What? He says that Elsie has been hidden away by someone who hates you because you mistreat your daughter. What kind of monster would write something like this? Calm down, Frank. It's obviously a pack of lies. The Parbecks received several threatening letters. Detectives suspected the anonymous writer might have witnessed what happened to Elsie. We'll return to our story in just a moment. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Were the Parobecks able to find the writer of the threatening letter? Unfortunately, Frank made that difficult. Thanks for seeing me, Frank. Do you have any news on Elsie? Well, that's why I'm here. I'd like to have another look at those letters. You can't. I know they're upsetting, but those letters may contain a clue that helps us find your daughter. I burned the letters. You... you what? When my neighbor told me what was in those letters, I couldn't bear it. I had to get rid of them. Did Frank burn the letters due to some ulterior motive? No, police didn't think so. 
but they were also never able to definitively locate the letter writer. Frank destroying the evidence probably didn't help. Fortunately, Frank wasn't the only one receiving letters. An anonymous letter was also sent to the police. The writer claimed that they saw Elsie walking by the canal with a young man on the day she went missing. Detectives quickly honed in on a peddler who lived in a shack by the canal a little over a mile from the Parabek's home. His name was Joseph Conesti. Joseph Conesti was a peddler from Bohemia, the same area that the Parabeks were from. Detectives interviewed Conesti's landlady, Mrs. Shaughnessy, who helped fuel their suspicions about Conesti. Did you ever see Mr. Conesti with this little girl, Mrs. Shaughnessy? I'm not sure. He's brought a lot of different little girls to the house. So he had a habit of bringing little girls over to visit? I kept telling him I didn't want him bringing kids on the property, but he wouldn't listen to me. Yeah, we'd like to speak with him as soon as possible. I'm afraid I've already evicted him, but all his belongings are still at the house if you want to look around. Detectives scoured Conesti's home. They found boxes and trunks full of an assortment of items, Catholic prayer books in both English and Bohemian, laces, scraps of silk, beads, women's hats, and children's clothing. Why would a man living alone need so much women's and children's clothing? Investigators wondered that as well. One item in particular caught their attention. Look at all this junk. How was he able to fit all these barrels in here? I think I found something. A green ribbon? Isn't that what Mrs. Parabek said Elsie was wearing? We'll have to show this to her for confirmation. Check out this hemp sack. Easily big enough to hide a child's body. Look at this. There was a hole here. Looks like it was only recently filled in. So, Canesti molests her, suffocates her, and buries her here. Then, at some point, he digs up the body and dumps it in the canal. How did no one notice him? Well, he's a peddler. Wouldn't exactly be odd for him to be carting around a large sack. Let's find Canesti and bring him in. Looks like we found our killer. Maybe. But police were never able to bring Conesti in for questioning. Why not? He decided to take matters into his own hands. Hey, mister. You shouldn't stand so close to the tracks. Mister? Hey, wait a minute. No! Don't! Canesti jumped in front of a train on May 10th. Maybe he had a guilty conscience. Maybe he was afraid that the police were about to figure out that he was the killer and he didn't want to go to jail. It's possible. But police decided that Canesti wasn't the killer a few days after he killed himself. Why? Whatever their reasoning, they didn't explain it to the press. But if Canesti didn't kill Elsie, who else could have killed her? Well, police discovered a new suspect on May 13th when they found the body of a young man in a canal only 20 miles from where Elsie's body was found. Do you think he was the young man someone saw walking with Elsie the day she disappeared? Police suspected as much, but unfortunately, they had no way to identify him. All he had on him was a Catholic prayer card written in Polish. On the card, he had written the words, Sig Hoff. What does that mean? Detectives weren't sure. Perhaps the writing referred to the coroner's name, Hoffman, but that's just a guess. 
Maybe the young man was killed for whatever knowledge he had of the murder. You mean by the same killer as Elsie's? Well, it's possible, right? Or maybe he was scared the police were onto him and killed himself. It seems strange both Canesti and this young man would kill themselves over one murder. True. Unfortunately, police never did figure out the young man's identity. Which leaves us at another dead end. Luckily, the same day the police found the drowned body of the young man, they also found a new person of interest. A man named Kinsella, who also lived alone in a shack by the canal. He was known to be both fanatically religious and mentally ill. Just like Conesti. Hopefully, the police were able to interview the suspect this time. As a matter of fact, they weren't. When detectives tried to interview Kinsella, he wasn't interested in speaking. Kinsella, stop! We just want to talk. Get away from me! Gun! When Kinsella made a movement like he was drawing a weapon, the police officers fired their revolvers into the air. Calm down, Kinsella. We just want to ask you a few questions. No! No, leave me alone! Ah, damn it! Stop running! Come on! We can't let him get away! The detectives chased Kinsella for three miles. But they weren't able to catch him, and he escaped into the woods. Well, didn't they try to track Kinsella down? He certainly was behaving like somebody with something to hide. Well, for whatever reason, the police made no further publicized efforts to find Kinsella. So, we have two suspects who died, an anonymous letter writer who was never found, and a mentally ill man whom the police didn't pursue. It was a heartbreaking lack of development for Elsie's parents. Frank swore at Elsie's funeral that he wouldn't rest until her killer was brought to justice. <laughs> My little Elsie sleeping now. Nothing matters to her. But I won't rest until her killers are found. Sadly, Frank died two years later on the anniversary of his daughter's funeral. It would be over half a century before a new suspect in Elsie's death was uncovered. A man who spent his life creating paintings of child martyrs. A man whose paintings are accompanied by a 15,145-page fantasy manuscript about these tormented little girls, a manuscript in which Elsie Parobek has a starring role. A man whose name is synonymous with outsider art. This man was Henry Darger. So who exactly was Henry Darger? Henry Darger was a man who spent his life living in obscurity in Chicago, barely interacting with anyone outside of his job as a janitor at a Catholic hospital. The rare times he left his tiny apartment, he was either attending mass or digging through trash cans. Hi, Henry. How are you doing today? It's cloudy out. Chance of snow. Thanks for letting me know. What are you doing with all those Pepto-Bismol bottles? It's... it's supposed to snow. Sure. Well, have a good day. Henry only ever talked to his neighbors about the weather. Yet sometimes they would hear different voices carrying on long conversations in Darger's apartment. Darger! Darger! I expect you to clean those floors properly! What is the matter with you? Shut up, you old crone! 
What did you say to me? You heard me. You're a useless old biddy. Who does Henry have in his apartment, do you think? No one. You're not going to get away with this sort of disrespect. You'll be out of a job here before you know it. No one cares what you think, you old shrew. But I hear a woman's voice. He's talking to someone. Sweetheart, Henry does all the voices. So Darger was definitely rather odd. He may have ended up that way as a result of a rather miserable childhood. Henry Darger was born in 1892 in Chicago. His mother died four years later after giving birth to Henry's baby sister. But Henry never got to know his sister. You're doing the right thing. Thank you. Bye. Daddy, where are they going with my sister? They're taking her to a new home, son. I couldn't... I couldn't look after her. So they're going to find someone who can. Oh, but when's she coming home? She's not coming home, son. I'm sorry. That's not fair! Darger, according to his diary, had a terrible temper as a child. He especially hated little girls. Go away! You can't play here! Why not? I was here first! This is my spot! You can't tell me what to do. You better get out of here or else! Or else what? Honey, what is it? What happened? Henry tried to cut me with a knife. He what? (sighs) You stay away from that boy. You understand me? Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to our story. Henry Darger not only tried to slash a little girl with a knife, he also threw ashes into another little girl's eyes. That's pretty disturbing behavior. I'll say. But despite Henry's temper, the boy had a loving relationship with his father. Yet soon, Henry's father became too ill to care for Henry as well. When Henry was eight, his father went to a Catholic home for invalids. Henry himself was sent to the Mission of Our Lady of Mercy, a Catholic boys' home. Henry quickly found himself widely disliked by both the teachers and other children due to his attempts to amuse the class by making strange noises. All right, class, today we're going to go over our multiplication tables. I'm sure everyone remembers one times one. One! Shut up, Henry, or we'll knock your teeth out. We are going to kill you. Mr. Darger, settle down right this instant or it's the ruler for you. Now what's one times two? Two! One time. Mr. Darger, get down here right now. Hold out your hand. Darger later beat several boys who tried to gang up on him after school with a large stick. His beat down of the other children was so violent that the school excommunicated him. When Darger's father died in 1905, he was sent to the Illinois home for the feeble-minded, allegedly for being caught masturbating. He was forced to spend long hours laboring away on a farm and was punished severely any time he misbehaved. Darger made several attempts to escape from the asylum, finally succeeding at the age of 16. Darger returned to Chicago and started working as a janitor at a Catholic hospital in Chicago. He lived his life in solitude. His only friend was a man by the name of William Schloeder. 
The two were so close that some have theorized that they were lovers. Together, Darger and Schloeder wanted to form the Children's Protective Society. No child should have to go through the kind of horrors I suffered. They shouldn't go to homes. They should be taken care of by families who love them. Here, here. I just wish we could do more to make people see that. What about adopting a child ourselves? You want to adopt? I've already written a petition. I'm waiting to hear back. Oh, I'm sure you'll be approved. You'd be a wonderful father. But Darger was denied permission to adopt, leaving him angry and heartbroken. Instead of focusing on the prospect of raising a little girl, Darger began to focus all of his attention on fictional little girls. Darger devoted 60 years of his life to completing a 15,000-page fantasy manuscript about little girls. His magnum opus was titled The Realms of the Unreal. Well, for short. The full name of Henry Darger's fantasy epic was The Story of the Vivian Girls in what is known as The Realms of the Unreal of the Glendeco and Jillian War Storm caused by the Child Slave Rebellion. <laughs> That's quite a mouthful. If you think the novel's title is bizarre, wait until you hear the plot. The story takes place on a distant planet where the Earth is a moon. Most of the planet's countries are Christian and Catholic. The protagonists are seven princesses, otherwise known as the Vivian Girls, from the Christian country known as Abiena. They live in a magical land populated by giant butterflies and colorful flowers, and they are protected by winged serpents known as Blegans. Abiena has been taken over by evil, godless child slavers known as the Glendolinians. The Glendolinians spend most of their time forcing children into slavery or torturing them. Maybe Darger was inspired by his childhood of forced labor at the asylum. It's possible. Now, Darger isn't necessarily famous for the novel itself. He's well known because he created 300 watercolor illustrations of all sizes to go with the manuscript. Some of these paintings were 12 feet long. Well, that's certainly a prodigious number of drawings, but what makes the art so special? Darger had an unusual way of creating his paintings. They were a combination of watercolor and collage. He didn't feel confident drawing little girls, so he would cut drawings of little girls out of magazines and advertisements and combine them with his watercolor paintings of flowers, dragons, rivers, and battlefields. If a girl in an advertisement which he wanted to use was the wrong size, he would go down to the drugstore and get the image enlarged. He also filled the girl's eyes with pencil lead so they seemed to shine in the dark. Well, that sounds impressive for an untrained artist. And a little creepy. Darger's collage paintings are possibly the most famous example of what is known as outsider art. And what is outsider art? Outsider art is created by artists who are self-taught and haven't had any traditional artistic training or interaction with the art world. Outsider artists very often suffer from mental illness. Their work is frequently not discovered until after their deaths, and they often create elaborate fantasy worlds. Darger's paintings definitely qualify. They sound like they wouldn't look out of place in Alice in Wonderland. Some of Darger's drawings were quite peaceful and fantastical. 
But many of Darger's paintings were incredibly disturbing. The little girl heroines were sometimes drawn wearing pretty dresses, but they were just as often drawn naked. And Darger drew penises on many of the naked little girls. What? Why? One reason could be that Darger was never intimate with a woman, and he honestly had no idea what girls looked like naked. Or maybe this was his own way of struggling with his repressed sexuality or genderqueer identity. Well, that might make sense, given that some believe Darger was in a relationship with Schloder. Of course, others believe that there is a darker reason why Darger often drew little girls naked. He might have been a pedophile. And as though his drawings weren't already questionable enough, Darger also drew many scenes of Glendalinians torturing and murdering little girls. He drew girls strangled, hanged, nailed bleeding from crosses, or sliced open with their eyes gouged out and their guts scattered all over the ground. Blech. If Darger was willing to draw men murdering little girls in such grotesque ways, was he willing to act on those fantasies? It's hard to know for sure. Darger could have been painting an exaggerated version of his own childhood. The leader of the Glendalinians, John Marley, was named after Darger's childhood bully. Or maybe Darger was using the novel to express his own repressed desires to kill. Or maybe Darger's drawings reflected what he actually did in real life. You think Henry Darger might have been a pedophile? Or even a serial killer? Maybe his drawings of murdered little girls definitely showed a twisted and obsessive mind. But how does Darger's creepy artwork connect him to Elsie Parobeck? Most of the novel, The Realms of the Unreal, involves the Vivian girls leading child slave rebellions. Their inspiration is the child martyr of the first slave rebellion, a girl named Annie Ehrenberg. Annie is believed to have been based on Elsie Parubeck. What does Darger do to Annie in his book? Any chance it's similar to how Elsie died? In Darger's manuscript, Annie suffers a horrific death when the Glendalinians strangle her and cut her with razors. It's much bloodier than Elsie's death. So how do we even know for sure that Annie was based on Elsie? Annie in the books is a little blonde girl like Elsie, and the collar of her dress looks like Elsie's. Could that be a coincidence? Unlikely. You see, Darger liked to keep pictures of little girls in his home and in his locker at work. In the summer of 1912, about a year after Elsie's death, Darger's favorite photo of a little girl from a newspaper went missing. He believed this was a tragedy. Well, it seems like a bit of an overreaction over a misplaced photo. Not to Darger. He became obsessed with the lost photograph, dubbing the time period it went missing the Great Ehrenberg Mystery. Dear Lord, I have prayed and prayed to you. I have performed endless novenas. All I ask is that Annie's picture be returned to me. Is that too much to request of you, Lord? I warned you. I've set my last deadline. If I do not find Annie's picture, then the Glandolinians will win the war against the good Christian nations. Countless little girls will be massacred. Is that what you want, Lord? Will innocent children suffer because you will not listen to my prayers? <sighs> Fine. They will all die horribly. And it will be your fault. But what makes you so sure that the photo that Darger was praying about was a picture of Elsie? Darger didn't write Elsie's name in his diary, 
But he did write down that he had cut the little girl's picture out of the Chicago noise in May, June, or July of 1911. Oh, the exact time Elsie's photo was in that paper. Right. That's creepy. But why couldn't Darger get another copy of Elsie's photo? Because Darger couldn't remember the exact date Elsie's photo had been in the papers, he was never able to find her photo again. So he resorted to pleading with God. And when God didn't return Elsie's photo to Darger, he began drawing some of the most disturbing pictures in his collection. All those scenes of little girls being tortured and killed. The missing photograph became a plot point in the books. Countless battles were fought against the Glendalinians in an effort to recover a missing photograph of Annie Ehrenberg. Well, it sounds like Darger was completely obsessed with Elsie's photo. Did he really give the book an unhappy ending all because of the missing photo? In the fictional war, the carnage only ends when Annie's ghost appears to Darger, who is a commander fighting alongside the Vivian girls in the books. Annie's ghost begs him to stop looking for her photograph. After abandoning the quest for the photograph, the Vivian girls are eventually able to win the war against the Glendalinians. The real question is why Darger was so fixated on Elsie's photograph out of all of his pictures and cutouts of these little girls. Well, maybe it was just one of his strange obsessions, similar to how he collected Pepto-Bismol bottles from the trash or created elaborate balls of twine. Maybe the picture of Elsie served as a reminder to Darger of his own horrific childhood filled with abuse and neglect. Or maybe Darger was obsessed with Elsie's photograph because he was her killer. And his obsession with drawing anatomically incorrect naked girls was certainly unsettling. And what about all the gruesome paintings Darger drew of little girls being violently tortured and killed? He had a dark and twisted imagination, that's for sure. But I don't know how I feel about equating someone's artwork with their real-life intentions or actions. Plenty of artists create violent imagery they would never act on in real life. But Darger was violent. As a child, he attacked little girls. He even wrote in his diary about how much he hated them. And he got expelled from school for beating up other children. But he was also bullied terribly by the other boys at school, mistreated by the adults in his life, and orphaned at a young age. That's true. He did not have an easy childhood. And if Darger was struggling with his sexuality or his gender identity, that would have made his childhood even more difficult and confusing for him. I still think Darger was the killer. Well, who else could have murdered Elsie? Darger is a very viable suspect. I think the peddler, Conesti, is a close second. Mm, the police cleared him. But we don't know why. Maybe the police were wrong. After all, why would he jump in front of a train right after Elsie's body was discovered unless he had a guilty conscience? We may never know for sure who killed Elsie, but she has been forever immortalized as Henry Darger's muse for Annie Ehrenberg. Darger's paintings of Annie and the Vivian girls are now worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. But are we celebrating the paintings of a reclusive genius or the fantasies of a child killer? Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll investigate the case of Bob Crane. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we make it till next time.
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and written by Jeanette Manning. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Joshua Kahn, Janice Liebhart, Harris Markson, Nicholas Massu, Sammy Nye, and Steve Pinto. 